Part Two of Vampires of Space by Sewell Peasley Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. Hendricks waited, moodily silent, until the ship was coming around on her course, picking up speed every instant. Kincaid had gradually increased the pull of the gravity paths to about twice normal, so that we found it barely possible to move about. The Urtak was an old-timer, but she could pick up speed when she had to that would have thrown us all headlong were it not for the artificial gravity anchorage of the pads. "'It's all guesswork,' began Hendricks slowly. "'So I hope you won't place too much reliance in my theory, sir. I'll give you my line of reasoning, and you can evaluate it for yourself. These things are creatures of space. No form of life as we know it can live in space. Therefore they are not material. They are not matter like ourselves. From their effect upon the charts we decided that they were electrical in nature, not made up of atoms and electrons, but of pure electrical energy in an unfamiliar form. Then, remembering that they exist in space, and concluding that they were the destroyers of the two ships we know of, I began wondering how they brought about the destruction, or at least the disappearance, of these two ships life of any kind must have something to feed upon. To produce one kind of energy we must convert, apparently consume, some other kind of energy. Even our atomic generators slowly but surely eat up the metal in which is locked the power which makes the ship's power possible. But in space, what could these things feed upon? What, if not those troublesome bodies, meteorites? and meteorites, as we know, are largely metallic in composition, and ships are made of metal. Here are the only proofs, if proofs you can call them, that these are not wild ideas. First, the disintegrator rays, working upon an electrical principle, reacted upon but did not destroy these things, as might be expected from the meeting of two not dissimilar manifestations of energy, and the fact that I did, from the port, see one of the space things, or part of one, flattened out upon the body of the Urtek, and feeding upon her skin, already roughened and pitted slightly from the thing's hungry activities. Hendricks fell silent, staring down at the floor. He was only a youngster, and the significance of his remarks was as plain to him as it was to the rest of us. If these monsters from the void were truly feeding on the skin of our ship, vampire-like, it would not be long before it would be weakened, weakened to the danger point, weakened until we would explode in space like a gigantic bomb, to leave our fragments to whirl onward forever through the darkness and the silence of outer space. "'And what, sir, do you plan to do when we reach this N-127?' asked Corey. "'Burn them off with a run through the atmosphere?' No, that wouldn't work, I imagine. I glanced at Hendricks inquiringly, and he shook his head. My only thought was to land so that we would have some chance. Outside the ship we can at least attack. Locked in here we're helpless. Attack, sir? With what? asked Kincaid curiously. That I can't answer. But at least we can fight, with solid ground under our feet, and that's something. You're right, sir grinned Corey. It was the first smile that had appeared on the faces of any of us in many minutes. And fight we will. If we lose the ship at least we'll be alive with a hope of rescue. 
Hendricks glanced up at him and shook his head, smiling crookedly. "'You forget,' he remarked, "'that there's no air to breathe on N-127, an atmosphere of nitrogen, and no water that's drinkable, if the reports are accurate. A breathing mask will not last long, even the new types.' "'That's so,' said Kincaid. "'The tanks hold about a ten-hour supply, less if the wearer is working hard or fighting.' Ten hours, no more, if we did not find some way to destroy these leeches of space before they destroyed the Ertak. During the next half hour little was said. We were drawing close to our tiny, uninhabited haven, and both Corey and Kincaid were busy with their navigation. Working in reverse, as it were, from the rough readings of the television disc settings, an ordinary simple task was made extremely difficult. I helped Corey interpret his headings, and kept a weather eye on the gauges over the operating table. We were slipping into the atmospheric fringe of N-127, and the surface temperature gauge was slowly climbing. Hendricks sat hunched heavily in a corner, his head bowed in his hands. "'I believe,' said Kincaid at length, "'I can take over visually now.' He unshuttered one of the ports and peered out. N-127 was full abreast of us, and we were dropping sideways toward her at a gradually diminishing speed. The impression given us, due to the gravity pads in the keel of the ship, was that we were right side up, and N-127 was approaching us swiftly from the side. "'Vegetation of heroic size is right, too,' said Corey, who had been examining the terrain at close range through the medium of the television disc. Two of the leaves on some of the weeds would make an awning for the whole ship. See any likely place to land, Kincaid? Nowhere except along the shore, and then we'll have to do some nice work and lay the Ertak parallel to the edge of the water. The beach is narrow, but apparently the only barren portion. Will that be all right, sir? Use your own judgment, but waste no time. Corey, break out the breathing masks and order the men at the airlock exit port to stand by. I'm going out to have a look at these things." "'May I go with you, sir?' asked Hendricks sharply. "'And I?' pleaded Kincaid and Corey in chorus. "'You, Hendricks, but not you two. The ship needs officers, you know.' "'Then why not me instead of you, sir?' argued Corey. "'You don't know what you're going up against.' "'All the more reason I shouldn't be receiving any information second-hand,' I said. "'And as for Hendricks, he's the laboratory man of the Ertek. And these things are his particular pets, right, Hendricks? Right, sir, said my third officer grimly. Corey muttered under his breath something which sounded very much like profanity, but I let it pass. I knew just how he felt. I have never liked to wear a breathing mask. I feel shut in, frustrated, more or less helpless. The hiss of the air and the everlasting flap-flap of the exhaust valve disturb me. But they are very handy things when you walk abroad on a world which has no breathable atmosphere. You've probably seen in the museums the breathing masks of that period. They were very new and modern then, although they certainly appear cumbersome by comparison with the devices of today. Our masks consisted of a huge shirt of airtight light material, which was belted in tightly around the waist and bloused out like an ancient balloon when inflated. The armholes were sealed by two heavy bands of elastic close to the shoulders, and the headpiece was of thin copper, set with a broad curved band of crystal, 
which extended from one side to the other across the front, giving the wearer a clear view of everything except that which was directly behind him. The balloon-like blouse, of course, was designed to hold a small reserve supply of air for an emergency, should anything happen to the tank upon his shoulders, or the valve which released the air from it. They were cumbersome, uncomfortable things, but I donned mine and adjusted the menorah built into the helmet to full strength. I wanted to be sure I kept in communication with both Hendricks and the sentries at the airlock exit, and, of course, inside the helmets verbal communication was impossible. I glanced at Hendricks and saw that he was ready and waiting. We were standing inside the airlock, and the mighty door of the port had just finished turning in its threads and was swinging back slowly on its massive gimbals. "'Let's go, Hendricks,' I emanated. "'Remember, take no chances and keep your eyes open.' "'I'll remember, sir,' replied Hendricks and together we stepped out onto the coarse gravel of the beach. Before us waves of an unhealthy cloudy green rolled slowly, heavily shoreward, but we had no eyes for this, nor for the amazing vegetation of the place, plainly visible on the curving shores. We took a few hurried steps away from the ship, and then turned to survey the monsters which had attacked it. They literally covered the ship. In several places their transparent, glowing bodies overlapped, and the sides of the Urtek, ordinarily polished and smooth as the surface of a mirror, were dull and deeply eroded. "'Notice, sir,' emanated Hendricks excitedly, "'how much brighter the things are. They are feeding, and they are growing stronger and more brilliant. They—look out, sir, they're attacking. Our copper helmets—' But I had seen it as quickly as he— Half a dozen of the glowing things, sensing in some way the presence of a metal which they apparently preferred to that of the Urtak's hull, suddenly detached themselves and came swarming directly down upon us. I was standing closer to the ship than Hendricks, and they attacked me first. Several of them dropped upon me, their glowing bodies covering the vision-piece and blinding me with their light. I waved my arms and started to run blindly, incoherent warnings coming to me through the minore from Hendricks and the sentries. The things had no weight, but they emanated a strange electric warmth which seemed to penetrate my entire body instantly as I ran, unseeingly, trying to find the ship, tearing at the fastenings of my mask as I ran. I could not, of course, enter the ship with these things clinging to my garments. Suddenly I felt water splash under my feet, felt its grateful coolness upon my legs, and with a gasp I realized that I had in my confusion been running away from the ship instead of toward it. I stopped, trying to get a grip on myself. The belt of the breathing mass came loose, and I tore the thing from me, holding my breath and staring around wildly. The ship was only a few yards away, and Hendricks, his mask already off, was running toward me. "'Back!' I shouted. "'I'm all right now. Back!' He hesitated for an instant until I caught up with him, and then, together, we gained the safety of the airlock. Without orders the men shut the ponderous door, and Hendricks and I stood there, panting and drawing in breaths of the Urtak's clean, reviving air. "'That possibility was one we overlooked, sir,' said Hendricks. "'Let's see what's happening.' We opened the shutter of a port nearby and gazed out onto the beach we had so hurriedly deserted. 
There were three or four of the glowing things huddled shapelessly around our abandoned suits, and ragged holes showing in several places in the thin copper helmets. Even as we looked, they dissolved into nothingness, and after a few seconds of hesitation the thing swarmed swiftly back to the ship. Well, I commented, trying to keep my voice reasonably free from the feelings which gripped me. I believe we're beaten, Hendricks. At least we're helpless against them. Our only chance is that they'll leave us before they've eaten through the second skin. So long as we still have that we can live, and perhaps be found. I doubt they'll leave us while there's a scrap of metal left, sir, said Hendricks slowly. Something's brought them from their usual haunts. There's no reason why they should leave a certainty for an uncertainty. But we're not quite through trying. I saw something. Have I your permission to make another try at them? Alone, sir? Any chance of success, lad? I asked, searching his eyes. A chance, sir, he replied, his glance never wavering. I can be ready in a few minutes. Then go ahead, on one condition, that you let me come with you. Very good, sir, as you wish. Have two other breathing masks ready. I'll be back very soon. And he left me hastily, taking the steps of the companionway two at a time. It was nearly an hour before Hendricks returned, bringing with him two of the most amazing pieces of apparatus I have ever seen. To make each of them he had taken a flask of compressed air from our emergency stores and run a flexible tube from it into a cylindrical drinking water container. Another tube, which I recognized as being part of our fire extinguishers and terminating in a metal nozzle, sprouted from the water container. Both tubes were securely sealed around the mouth of the metal cylinder, and lengths of hastily knotted rope had been bound around each contrivance so that the two heavy containers, the air flask and the small water tank, could be slung from the shoulders. "'Here, sir,' he said hastily, "'get into a breathing mask and put on these things as you see me do. No time to explain anything now except this. As soon as you're outside the ship, turn the valve that opens the compressed air flask. Hold this hose, coming from the water container, in your right hand. Don't touch the metal nozzle. Use the hose just as you would a portable disintegrator ray projector." I nodded and followed his instructions as swiftly as possible. The two containers were heavy, but I adjusted their ropes across my shoulders so that my left hand had easy access to the valve of the air flask, and the water container was under my right arm or I could have full use of the hose. "'Let me go first, sir,' breathed Hendricks as we stood again in the airlock and the door turned out of its threaded seat and swung open. Keep your eyes on me and do as I do. He ran heavily out of the ship, his burdens lurching. I saw him turn the pet cock of the air flask, and I did likewise. A fine, powerful spray shot from the nozzle of the tube in my right hand, and I whirled around to face the ship. Several of the things were detaching themselves from the ship, and instinctively I turned the spray upon them. Hendricks, I could see out of the corner of my eye, did likewise. And now a most amazing thing happened. The spray seemed to dissolve the crescent-shaped creatures. Where it hit, ragged holes appeared. A terrible hissing, crackling sound came to my ears, even through the muffling mask I wore. It works! It works! Hendricks was crying over and over, hardly aware in his excitement that he was wearing a menore. We're saved! 
I put down three of the things in as many seconds. The central nucleus of the thickest portion of the crescent was always the last to go, and it seemed to explode in a little shower of crackling sparks. Hendricks accounted for four in the same length of time. "'Keep back, sir,' he ordered in a sort of happy delirium. "'Let them come to us. We'll get them as they come, and they'll come all right. Look at them. Look at them. Quick, sir.' The things showed no fear, no intelligence. But one by one they sensed the nearness of the copper helmets we wore, and detached themselves from the ship. They moved like red tongues of flame upon the fat sides of the Ertak, crawling, uneasy flames, releasing themselves swiftly one after the other. Our sprays met them in midair, and they dissolved like mist one after the other. I directed my death-dealing spray with a grim delight, and as each glowing heart crackled and exploded, I chuckled to myself. The sweat was running down my face. I was shaking with excitement. One side of the ship was already cleared of the things. They were slipping over the top now, one or two at a time, and as rapidly as they came we wiped them out. At last there was a period in which there were none of the things in sight, none coming over the top of the sorely tried ship. "'Stay here and watch, Henricks,' I ordered. i look on the other side. I believe we've got them all." I hurried as best I could around to the other side of the Ertak. Her hull was pitted and corroded, but there was no other evidence of the crescent-shaped things which had so nearly brought about the ship's untimely, ghastly end. "'Hendricks!' I emanated happily. "'Nothing less than complete success. And that's ours right now. They're gone, all of them.' I slipped the contrivances from my shoulders and ran back to the other side of the ship. Hendricks was executing some weird sort of dance patting the containers, swinging them wildly about his body with an understandable fondness. "'Come inside, you idiot,' I suggested, "'and tell us how you did it, and see how it feels to be a hero.' "'It was just luck,' Hendricks tried to make us believe, a few minutes later, when Kincaid, Corey, and myself were through slapping his back and shaking his hands. "'When you, sir, splashed into the water, I had just torn off my mask, I saw some of the water fall on one of the things clustered upon your helmet, and I distinctly heard it hiss as it fell. And where it fell it made a ragged hole which very slowly closed up, leaving a dim spot in the tentacle where the hole had been. As I figured it, the water, to put it crudely, short-circuited the electrical energy of the things. That too is just a guess, but I think it's a good one. Of course it was a long chance, but it seemed like our only one. There was nothing more or less than acidulated water in the containers, and the air flasks, of course, were merely to supply the pressure to throw the water out in a powerful spray. It happened to work, and there isn't anybody any happier about it than I am. I'm young, and there are a lot of things I want to do before I bleach my bones on a little deserted world like this that isn't important enough to even have a name." That was typical of Hendricks. He was a practical scientist, willing and eager to try out his own devices. A man of action first, as a man should be. None of us, I think, spent a really easy moment until the Ertak was back at base. Our outer hull was weakened by at least half, and we were obliged to increase the degree of vacuum there and thus place the major portion of the load on the inner skin. It was a ticklish business, but these old ships were solidly built, and we made it. 
As soon as I had completed my report to the chief, the Ertak was sent instantly to a secret field under heavy guard, and a new outer hull put in place. This can't be made public, the chief warned me. It would ruin the whole future of space travel, as people are just learning to accept it as a matter of course. You will swear your men to utter secrecy, and pass me your word, in behalf of your officers and yourself, that you will not divulge any details of this trip. The scientists, of course, questioned me for days. They turned up their noses at the crude apparatus Hendricks had made, and which had saved the Ertak and all her crew, but they kept it, I noticed, for future reference. All ships were immediately supplied with the devices very similar but more compact, the use of which only chief officers knew. And the scientists, to my knowledge, never did improve greatly on the model made for them by my third officer. Whether or not these devices were ever used, I do not know. The silver sleeves at base are a closed-mouthed crew. Hendricks always held that the group of things which so nearly caused the deaths of us all had wandered into our portion of the universe from some part of space beyond the fringe of our knowledge. But the same source which supplied one brood may supply another. Evidently, from young Clippin's report, this thing has happened, and since starting this account I have determined why the powers that be are willing now to have the knowledge made public. The new psilocyte coating with which all spaceships have been covered is proof against all electrical action. That it is smoother and reduces friction is, in my opinion, no more than a rather halty explanation. It is, in reality, the decidedly belated scientific answer to a question raised back in the heyday of the Ertak and my own youth. That was many, many years ago, as the crabbed, uncertain writing on these pages proves. And now, rather thankfully, I am about to place the last of these pages under the curious weight which has held the others in place as I have written. That irregular bit of metal from the hull of the Ertak, so deeply pitted on the one side, where the hungry things had sapped our precious strength. Electites, the scientists have dubbed these strange crescent-shaped things, young Clippin said. Electites, something new under the sun. New to this generation, perhaps, but not to old John Hansen. End of Vampires of Space by Sewell Peasley Wright